You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent, general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome to Skylight. This is the Skylight Books Podcast, and I'm your host, Tally. Today, we're welcoming Numrata Podar to read from their new novel, Borderla. Before I introduce them, I just want to remind you that Skylight Books offers curbside pickup and online ordering on our website, www.skylightbooks.com. Numrata Podar writes fiction and nonfiction, serves as interviews editor for Quelli, and teaches literature as well as creative writing at UCLA. Her work has appeared in several publications, including Poets and Writers, Literary Hub, Long Reads, The Kenyan Review, Electric Literature, Catapult, and The Best Asian Short Stories. Her debut novel, Borderless, is out now. She holds a PhD in French literature from the University of Pennsylvania, an MFA in fiction from Bennington College, and a Mellon postdoctoral fellowship in transnational cultures from UCLA. Welcome, Namrata. I'm so happy to have you. Thank you, Hallie. Thank you for having me. It's a skylight as we were talking. It's such an LA institution. I'm really honored to be here. Yeah, we're honored to have you. Um, I would love, before we get started with our conversation, I'd love to hear uh, you read from Borderless. Sure. Um, so I will just start with maybe a couple of excerpts. As you know, um, the novel is very polyphonic. It has multiple perspectives weaved into it. So I might read you two excerpts from two different perspectives. The book is set uh, divided into two sections, roots and routes. So this is from the very opening of the book, uh, Roots, and it's uh, this part is set in Mumbai, India. And the opening chapter is called Help Me Help You. Dia covered her mouth so the American wouldn't hear her yawn. Last hour of answering calls before hitting home, switching shifts with Ma to take care of Papa, prepping for college finals, and returning to work the following night. She'd multitasked before. She'd done night shifts for five years now. She could totally do this last hour, she told herself, while parroting their airline's policy. Yes, sir, you may carry two pieces of luggage for free, each weighing 50 pounds or under. Are you from Bangalore? He asked. One of those drunk customers again, smitten with exotic women. And Chaya, her supervisor at Voice Zone Call Center, was keeping a strict watch on her performance. One week left in May, and Thea had already exhausted her monthly limit of fatal errors over calls. With a toddler and an infant at home, Chaya could relate to her sleep deprivation. Stone for advanced workouts she usually did before reporting to work. She looked at the clock on the computer screen ahead. Your voice is so sweet. Thank you, sir. Have I answered all your travel questions? It had been 13 minutes with the drunkard, three minutes past the ideal query resolution time. If the screen timer reached 15 minutes, she'd get another fatal error on her monthly performance and would have to say goodbye to the promotion offer in Manila, her game plan out of Mumbai's survival rut and into the American dream with Aziz. She stretched an arm sideward, 
rotated her wrist and curled her middle finger into a Kathak mudra, while others pointed to Aziz sitting in the cubicle across from her. The hand gestures from her training in dance worked as a code between them when they answered calls. Between their chairs, steel gray carpeting divided rows of gray cubicles on each side of the room, reminders of American professionalism and productivity. Above them, a freshly painted ceiling, as if its golden yellow could infuse life into the drone of buzzing telephones, the sea of hunched backs, and the second-by-second -second monitored performance of a third world sucking up to the first. Aziz swiveled his chair to Adia and lip-synced, everything okay? Are you wearing a sari? The customer asked. No, sir, Dia jutted her tongue out and raised a thumb toward her mouth. Aziz peeked through Chaya's door, close to his side of the room. He'd figured how to tell if Chaya was in. Between the door and the wall, there was a crack through which he could spot the metal knob when the door was locked. What are you wearing then? Aziz nodded toward the officer's back exit. Chaya was out for a shanty break, snacking on marijuana cookies sold illegally at the Panwala stall across from the officer's building. Voice zones open secret to surviving the night shifts, the sleep deprivation, the social isolation, the cameras, the clocks, the Americans. I'll stop with the first excerpt right here. And um, since we have time, can I ask you, Holly, how much time, how much more time we have? Um, another excerpt would be great, yeah. Okay, great. Anytime. So um, I will read you the second excerpt, which is from the second section of the book that's called Routes. And this is based in Los Angeles. I thought it was pertinent since we're talking at Skylight. Um, and also the book is among many things about female friendships. So this is from the perspective of Thea's best friend, Noor. And this chapter is called Firam. We were all hanging at Feth in Beverly Hills, trying to have a cordial time. I was sitting next to my husband, Vishal, his shoulder grazing mine. Pinky and her husband, TJ, Vish's closest friends since childhood, were seated across from us. They never held hands in public, and those days, neither did we. The queen's a complex character, but she's not relatable, Vish said, raising a finger. A ruthless father and oblivious husband and now a bratty son, of course she's relatable. TJ had gotten louder after two dirty martinis. Look at the king's hand, Mr. Do-Gooder and all that, so boring. He sank back into his large cushion chair. I looked at the clouds and hoped it would rain. Once again, Los Angeles had a drought emergency. The patio we were seated was surrounded by lilies, roses, bougainvilleas, and palm trees arranged in ascending order of height. So La La Land hasn't got a firung hooked onto American TV yet? Pinky asked me. Firung the foreigner. That's how vicious circle of second generation Indian American friends teased me a fourth generation Indo-African. 
They knew I'd spent my childhood in Mauritius before moving to India, France, and Northern California for school, then to Orange County once I married Vish. La La Land keeps trying, I pointed at Vish. Like Pinky and TJ, Vish was raised in Greater LA. They were all Game of Thrones fans. They enjoyed chai tea latte too. Truth was, I'd never been into television. And with pregnancy then, the baby was making it harder for me to sit for longer stretches, so I moved as much as possible in my free time. When I wasn't on my computer web designing for clients, I pruned the bonsai in our patio, took a walk in our neighborhood's park, or cooked fresh food to music. Nothing beats a long day like lamb briani over an old cassia, I said, wondering if Pinky got it. A Sega band from our island. Close to reggae, I explained as usual my culture to Americans and caressed my swollen belly. TJ coughed and tapped his chest. TJ's into hip hop, Pinky said. I took a sip from my virgin mojito. A month before a double date, Vish and I had a baby shower in Long Beach. Pinky and TJ couldn't make it to the party as they were in Hawaii celebrating his dad's 70th birthday. So TJ insisted on making up for it by taking the two of us out upon the return. The dinner at Feth was our fifth outing with Pinky and TJ, and knowing my husband, we had to get along. Vish, TJ, and Pinky grew up together after their parents migrated from rural India to Southern California to start a small business, a 7-Eleven, an Indian grocery store, or a mom and pop motel. They might not share blood ties, but to Vish, they were family. My family means everything to me. He recycled his signature line when I chose to skip TJ's birthday in my first trimester to keep an appointment with a prenatal chiropractor. The baby was sitting on a nerve that gave me sciatic pain, and I used it as an excuse, no longer bothering to tell Vish why I didn't care to go to the party. We'd been through it a few times already. I'd confess the truth to him, and we'd enter a tired game of offense and defense, him accusing me of hypersensitivity toward his American family, me accusing him of insensitivity toward his African wife, both of us favoring one part of our hyphenated identity to prove a point. And just like that, a relationship of overall harmony, you could say we were your average couple. We loved each other and we had our share of unresolved issues would turn into a war featuring an us versus them. Define family, I said that day, holding his gaze and rubbing my belly. I'll stop here. Thank you. Um, that was clapping. That was so wonderful. It's completely mesmerizing to hear you read um thank you yeah from this incredible novel i guess uh to start i'd love to hear a little bit about um the voice of the novel and what kind of the seed of that was and how how it developed as you were writing yeah uh thank you for asking a question about voice because i'm certainly a very oral reader and writer 
and I say that because so much of creative writing in mainstream American workshops is about showing, not telling, or show, don't tell, and a certain visual, visual aesthetic toward uh, storytelling. And I'm much more oral like that. Most of the characters came as different voices to me. There was not a single dominant narrative voice and still isn't that dominates the novel, even if in many ways one can see the opening character, the uh, mythil as the protagonist. Mm -hmm. So many of the chapters just came as different voices when I started writing. And from vignettes, they developed into short fiction or short stories. And then they developed into sort of a collection of connected short fiction or stories and eventually a novel. Oh, wow. Okay. That's interesting. I also just thinking of Dia, I immediately thought about the other kind of like classic Western writing workshop thing that people say, which is give your characters a job. Yeah. Um, and I think it's so wonderful that she works at a call center. And I was curious about how you see that as fitting in with kind of the larger themes of the novel. Um, yeah. yeah. And that I would say that, um, you know, these ideas, yeah, it's interesting how voices come, even ideas come. I had no idea <laughs> I would write a main character who works as a call center agent. I don't know a whole lot about that world, but I was, um, when teaching in my early years at UCLA, I was attending a talk by a colleague and he gave a talk about his research on virtual migration. Migration as a topic has always interested me because I've changed homes so many times in different parts of the world, but also mm -hmm. a lot of my work is about migration and fiction, the intersection of migration and fiction. Um, but he talked about virtual migration in his book oh. um, and called centers in many ways is that idea of virtual migration where people often in the, in the so-called third world, right? You have employees in the third world who take on these first world mm -hmm. identities, American, Australian, or European identities, uh, learn about the culture and then talk to those customers there. So even if I've never been foreign to the idea of displacement and dislocation, that was fascinating to me the idea of virtual dislocation, where you stay rooted in the motherland mm -hmm. and still learn about another culture um, and take on that identity. So I started reading books, starting with his and several other books on call centers. And this felt important also because I always knew I wanted to write a book that would center my hometown, Mumbai, in addition to other homes that I've lived yeah. in. But, uh, until today, Mumbai is the city I've lived the longest in. I grew up in Mumbai. So it was very important for me to write Mumbai from a woman's mm -hmm. perspective into fiction. Um, yeah. and Mumbai, as you may know, in a lot of Hollywood, um, pop culture, television culture, movie culture, Mumbai is often shown as one of those places of multinational call center hubs. And it's shown in a certain way in Hollywood, mm -hmm. in television, um, and in, um, in Western movies. Um, and I wanted to see what I could do with that trope, because it, it, that it's shown 
the life in Mumbai call centers in Western pop cultures shown through an outsider's perspective. So when I started doing research, I wanted to show it from an insider's perspective. And of course, I'm no insider to this culture. So it meant that I did a lot of reading on this, on this world, but I did grow up in the city. So I do know the aspirations of and certain youth culture in the yeah. city. So I try to import that. And the dark side, uh, I was very interested in exploring the dark side of call center life and culture which is constant surveillance. They have a certain time limit. They have to answer calls within a certain time limit. I want, and I was a mother when I was writing, I finishing the later parts of this novel. So I knew the world of sleep deprivation and social isolation very well then as a new mother. Um, so I brought yeah. in some of my experiences, but I was fascinated um, by all the dark side that rarely gets talked about in uh, about a call center agent, and that's how it began. Wow, I am so I'm going to not ask you a thousand questions about virtual migration, although that is so fascinating, and I'd never heard that before. Um, but I also think that the intersection of surveillance and displacement is uh that's just like unlocking a lot of um other things in the novel for me because um i hadn't those yeah that connection is feels really strong and also very kind of rich in terms of how we view displacement as you know as people yeah. in the world um yeah okay I think, uh, if I may just add real quick here, that when I think of call centers as well, but I'm also thinking like readers, you, I agree with you that we now think of displacement in different ways. It's not just geographical, but you and I and so many of us of our generation, we spend so much time on social media that I feel like that, you know, the way it's connecting worlds and that creates a different kind of a virtual migration. So I felt like this was, yeah, you know, um, it, it might be a world familiar to many people. Mm -hmm. And perhaps, I don't know, is there a relationship between what people consider globalization and virtual migration? How are those two things connected? Or are uh, they? You know, I, in, writing, in writing the book, I didn't think necessarily of these larger themes in conscious ways as I do when I'm wearing a critic's hat, which I yeah. do in my academic life. Mm -hmm. But for this book, it was really just following the characters and seeing where they take me. Globalization can be interpreted in so many different ways, just like internet and television culture, right? Like a double-edged sword. And I feel I have a very ambivalent perspective toward globalization in so many ways it's great. And in so many ways, it's not that great at all. <laughs> Right. It's almost too big. It's like a hyper object or something that we can't quite get our wrap our brains around yet. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, that and I yet, want. Yeah. Go. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Um, and no, I just wanted to add that. Yes, it's too big, too abstract, you know, all encompassing. At the same time, I feel with spaces like Twitter, I feel it's also at our doorstep. I think it's both, maybe. It's both. Yeah, too big and too small, <laughs> um, for sure. I, uh, I want to talk a little bit about borders, um, both literally and conceptually. Um, do you feel that literature 
is a way for people to cross borders? Are there borders in literature that you were hoping to kind of disrupt or break? Um, I know in a lot of, in the book description, at least it says that you were hoping to disrupt the Western novel as it is now. And I'd love to hear um, you speak a little bit about that in your own words. Yeah, so I mean, the title itself of the book, it's not one word, it's not uh, that, utopian ideal of globalization of borderless, like we are all without borders, but it's a verb, it's borderless. So I do believe in lesser borders and I feel literature has always served that function, at least for me as a reader, but for so many of us as readers, right? We come to literature because we want to experience different worlds, something different. Um, so, um, no, I don't believe literature should exist to maintain borders. I've always believed literature has existed to disrupt borders. And I hope my book does that as well for many okay. readers. Um, <laughs> um, you know, at the very literal level, um, with the idea of borders, I think so. The, the novel is telling the stories of multiple characters of South Asian descent almost all of whom are border crossing. They are not confined or living or rooted in one nation state or nation as a space. They've crossed those borders. So borderless in the sense they're borderless. They're not defined by just one nation state. Um, they're border crossing characters, um, but borderless also because while telling these stories of immigrant characters, really one of the biggest questions for me while writing was what form can I use? And the form that I've been taught in so much of my education, um, and also what we see, I think, in much of mainstream literary, contemporary, or contemporary American fiction is one of the Western realist novel. Like when we look at awards, which are the ones that are getting some of the most prestigious awards in American mm -hmm. literature today, I think in fiction, I think of the Western realist novel and it has a certain set of assumptions. And those, mm -hmm. those assumptions of the form while telling the stories of my characters were just did not feel like the right fit so I had to think very seriously of the questions of form. And I mean, one of the biggest premises of fiction that's taught in many of the mainstream writing workshops is to build a long, vivid, continuous dream, the famous words, right, of John Gardner, mm -hmm. that you do not disrupt the reader's experience. Uh, and I'm talking about realist fiction here, of course, there are many kinds of fiction, um, is do not expect disrupt the reader's experience of this long, continuous, vivid dream. Mm -hmm. And my novel constantly disrupts, I think, it resists yeah. the idea of flow and continuity mm -hmm. in that ways. Linearity is something it challenges as well constantly in subtler ways, in overt ways, but also in covert, in indirect ways, but also with the framing devices, like the last chapter, the way the the novel ends, I think in, in, if one were doing a more conventional realist novel, it would make for, it would make sense for Borderless to end on Dia's journey, who's the protagonist one mm -hmm. would say, but it does yeah. not end on Dia's journey. It ends on a completely different character who comes up in the book in different mm -hmm. ways as a, uh, as, as a leitmotif. So, um, 
it gives voice to a secondary character to end the novel. And that voice itself, that piece, in many ways for readers who will catch that, then kind of, um, you know, in French, there is a there is a phrase called uh, boucle le boucle, which is like it puts that circle. It, it brings circularity, it circles, and it circles back to the quote with which the novel begins, which is a quote by Edouard Glissant, who was Nobel-dominated Afro-Caribbean thinker and one of my favorite writers, who talks about histories of oppression and what kinds of forms of storytelling those histories of oppression have produced. And the last chapter in many ways is also a meditation on the different histories of oppression. And it's sort of ending with also talking directly uh, in the last chapter when the goddess speaks, uh, mm -hmm. the goddess in Hindu mythology, Shakti, who speaks. She's also in certain parts of the chapter talking very directly to the Western literary establishment and sort of challenging those ideas. So those are just a few ways I'm sharing here on how the book disrupts borders of what may be considered as good storytelling in the literary establishment. But there are so many mm -hmm. other instances within the book that I hope the readers will catch as well. Yeah. Um, speaking of the readers, who is your ideal reader for this book and what do you hope that they take away from it? Um, well, as writers, we always hope that our readers will be those <laughs> who sort of cross borders and come to our stories from different parts of the world. That's sort of one of the yeah. driving impulses to write is to connect, you know, to create that invisible connection with readers in different mm -hmm. parts of the world. So, I mean, there is this you know, general ideal readership that we all aspire to. But I would say I've always seen my readership as some sort of concentric circles, right? Mm -hmm. There's this outer circle where we really want to reach to as broad a readership as possible. And those are some of the most heartening moments when yeah. someone in a different, completely different part of the world reaches out and says, hey, I got this, I loved it. And like, whoa, you know. Um, <laughs> But for the innermost circle of readership, I would say my innermost circle of readership, firstly, was women, two, two, I think, women of South Asian descent and immigrant women, women who've crossed borders. Yeah. Would you like to talk a little bit about kind of your publication journey for this novel? I know you mentioned it didn't start out as a novel. Um, yeah, how has that felt now that, or it will be out very soon? Um, what yeah. was the journey like for you? As with so many um, debut authors of color, but especially women authors of color, and even within that, very specially uh, migrant women authors mm -hmm. who, you know, who grew up in one part of the world and then who spent half their lives in this part. So I'm an Indian American and literally half my life was an Indian half in America with different stops in different parts of the world where I've lived as well. Um, so I think this was a book that was not centering America through and through um, from page one. And I think one of the reasons it was harder to get publishers to take an interest in this book, I think was one of the reasons it doesn't center ASAP 
the USA. Mm -hmm. um, it does. The second half of the book is completely, almost completely set in the USA. So it was a hard journey. Um, I talk about this in my interview series. I talk about this for Quayle, where I curate a series called Race, Power, and Storytelling. But I also talk about this in so much of my nonfiction essays um, about the American literary establishment and at the level of acquisition of books publishers and senior editors, it's 85, known to be 85% white at all levels of executive decision-making. And the figures must have changed slightly by now as we see, as we speak, but there's lots still awaiting change here. So um, yeah. it wasn't easy as with, as with so many minor who, who would be seen quote unquote as minority writers. Um, I lost count of the rejections. Like I received praise. I received a lot of encouraging rejections, wonderful praise by different gatekeepers at different points of time as well. Mm -hmm. And that was that was a good note as well of validation, all the, the encouraging parts of it. At the same time, after um, being a contender for three awards for debut novels, even those presses mm -hmm. that promote BIPOC voices mm -hmm. didn't eventually want to publish it. It was a contender for an award, but it didn't win the award finally. So right. yeah. um, so I, I felt like folks stopped at praise at some point and, um, I give credit, I, I really am so grateful here for my Asian American editor at the Independent Press 713 Books. Um, and um, yeah, I'm just grateful for him to take a chance on my work. And it has been a wonderful experience working with my publisher and my editor, Leyland Chuck, um, because I didn't have to explain so much of the world um, of my book to him. I didn't have to translate things for an alleged mainstream reader. I didn't have to explain a whole lot of the English used in this book, which is not your mainstream American English. It's a very mm -hmm. hybrid border crossing English and consciously so. Um, it's It's been a great experience. Um, I highly recommend to most debut authors to look at indie, small and university presses and just coming also from an academic background, I've known this, just university, the smaller presses, just take a chance on non-mainstream narratives so much more, as you may know as well, than, yeah. the, than the more mainstream big five do. They're really publishing the most remarkable books. Um, are there other books that you've read uh, lately or know of that you feel are doing kind of similar border, pushing borders, um, literally and figuratively of form that you would like to recommend? Uh, yeah, I think there's a pretty rich legacy, actually. Um, mm -hmm. And most of the literature that I've been reading off late, because I teach the same, is literature in color by writers of color. American uh, multi-ethnic fiction is mm -hmm. what I read. And I think this book, too, is drawing. It's drawing its lineage from American multi-ethnic fiction among other lineages. I think it's a marriage of several lineages. Yeah. But speaking of crossing forms, I would say contemporary American writers of color. And firstly, I'm thinking of one that's a little older in time, but the writer is contemporary, Sandra Cisneros, mm -hmm. um, The House on Mango Street, which sort of really collapsed in many ways, the borders between long and short fiction. Yeah. Um, and then more recently, uh, my colleague, my dear colleague at uh, UCLA, fellow Bruin, Justin Torres, 
mm -hmm. his debut novel, We the Animals. It's also sort of a novel in short fiction, I would say. It has a certain staccato rhythm to it as well. Um, mm -hmm. So that's another one. Uh, another UC colleague and wonderful writer, Leila Lalami. Um, her her book, Hope and Other Dangerous Pursuits, um, that is another book that collapses the borders between long and short fiction. Some may see it as a collection mm -hmm. of connected stories, and some might see it as a novel, and I think both are legit. I would see it as a novel. It just mm -hmm. does not follow the mainstream uh, assumptions of the mainstream novel, as I yeah. see it. Um, so many more. Christina Henriquez's gorgeous debut, um, The Book of Unknown Americans. That's another one. Um, yeah, these are the ones that come to mind, but there are many, many more. I mean, this lineage has always existed, I feel. It has, yeah. I'm glad it's, I'm glad it is becoming more mainstream too. Um, it's heartening for, <laughs> for yeah. readers everywhere. I hope so. Um, yeah. To, to end, I, I want to give you a moment to ask yourself a question. Um, if you could ask yourself one question about your novel, what would it be? I think the question would be, girlfriend, you've been studying decolonization for <laughs> so long. Why did it take you so long then to trust your own voice? <sighs> That's I love that. <laughs> and it doesn't matter how long it took. It just matters that you did. Um, and uh, I just want to thank you so much for sharing your work with us um, and for answering my questions. Uh, for you listeners out there, today's guest was Numrata Podar. And they were discussing Borderless, which is out now. Pick up a copy from Skylight or order it at skylightbooks.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. <laughs>